Mindfulness has helped me succeed in almost every dimension of my life. By stopping regularly to look inward and becoming aware of my mental state, I stay connected to the source of my actions and thoughts and can guide them with considerably more intention. Dustin Moskowitz Hi, and welcome back, everyone. This is episode 15 of Emetophobia Help. I'm Anna Christie from Vancouver, Canada, recovered emetophobic licensed psychotherapist and your host for this podcast. I want to start by apologizing to you all that I have not been getting my episodes um, edited and put out. I'm just incredibly busy and I'm really sorry about that. So I'm doing my very best. I have been recording them. So, um, it, yes, uh, hopefully I will turn the new leaf today. I'm really excited that um, today my guest is Dr. Jennifer Weinstein from Massachusetts. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you? I'm I'm good. I'm good. Is it spring in Massachusetts, wherever you're from, or or is it snow? blizzard right now yep it's spring it's been nice and warm this week so hopefully things will start to bloom yeah well yeah yeah uh here in vancouver things have bloomed and then we got thunder snow that was fun mm-hmm. um and, and so anyway jennifer and i are recording this uh just the day before easter weekend um so we'll hopefully have nice uh nice weather over the weekend so tell us a little bit about yourself i guess and and what you do so i'm a clinical psychologist and i've been working in a group private practice for about six and a half years and I specialize in treating people who have OCD, emetophobia, and some other anxiety disorders. I also have a background in mindfulness practices and meditation, and I do incorporate that a lot into my work clinically with people as well. Yeah, um, that's really awesome. And I just love talking to people that are treating emetophobia because I think, well, 20 years ago, I I wouldn't have been able to find any, I don't think, when I I first started with my website. So um, OCD, emetophobia, other anxiety disorders, how, how have you found if you have emetophobia to be different from uh, like treating it? or just in general, how do you find it different from those other disorders? Well, to be honest, I have found that it actually is in many ways very similar to mm-hmm. emanation OCD. Um, in terms of treating it, I use exposure and response prevention, which is the treatment of choice for OCD as well mm-hmm. and other phobias. And I have found that people tend to respond very well to that form of treatment. Can you tell me a little bit, and mainly because I have a lot of 
therapists that are following the podcast now. So just out of interest, what sort of um, modalities did you train in when you were when you were doing training and all those thousands of hours of supervision that you had to have? Well, I, I received a lot of training in cognitive behavioral therapy. I've received some training in exposure and response prevention, which technically is a type of cognitive behavior therapy. Right. I also learned a lot about other modalities such as psychodynamic psychotherapy, um, solution-focused therapy, Mm. acceptance and commitment therapy, motivational interviewing. Right. Some some good, interesting things. Um, I'm I know that a lot of people who listen don't really care if I go over the same things with different people, but I always think it's good to to just hear some uh, newer or different things. Would you mind just for our listening audience, just sort of um, defining or talking about what solution focused therapy is? Well, my training in solution-focused therapy is not in-depth, but my understanding is that it's really focused on helping people in the present to figure out how to move forward with whatever it is that they're dealing with. And so there are some specific questions that you can ask people to try to help get them thinking about what has worked in the past, what would it look like if I am achieving the result that I want to see to try mm-hmm. to help them less stuck. Right, right. Um, I think insurance companies like that. They like solution-focused therapy. I mean, they like CBT because it's evidence-based, but it seems like a lot of people talk about solution-focused being a shorter course of treatment for a lot of things. Not, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not just talking about emetophobia here. I'm just talking in general about therapy modalities. Um, I think some people have talked to me on the internet, emetophobic people, that their therapist has wanted to do solution-focused work with them, short-term, six sessions, something like that, and it was really unhelpful. Um, And I could imagine that it would be, could you hear a dog barking? No, No, I didn't. Okay, good. (laughs) I had, I asked my daughter, can you keep the kids downstairs, keep them quiet while I'm recording the podcast for about half an hour? And she was like, oh, sure. And now like my dog is down there just going crazy. So, (laughs) but if you can't hear nobody else, I'll probably just cut this bit out. Anyway. um, Yeah, I'm sure it's helpful for a lot of things. Um, I can think of many things for when people become stuck in a rut, you know, in their life and they just can't see their way forward. Um, We have talked a fair bit on, on my podcast about acceptance and commitment therapy or act. Um, The other thing that you mentioned that uh, I haven't talked about much is motivational interviewing. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, again, my training with that is not as in-depth. Um, I'm more focused in CBT and mindfulness practices. When I was starting out as a grad student, I did a lot of 
work in substance abuse, which is where motivational interviewing is mostly utilized Mm -hmm. Um, and focusing on, again, helping people to become less stuck and relapse prevention and moving them through stages of change and things like that. Right, right. Excellent. Thank you for those little that little sidetrack, um, just some definitions. I think a lot of um, therapists use these terms and, and our listeners see them written in books and in articles and on, on the internet and so on. And so, um, so your main, yes, well, let's talk about ERP or exposure and response prevention, because that's what is probably the most helpful with a metaphobia. How did you, first of all, how did you get into treating a metaphobia? To be honest, it just sort of fell into my lap. I had never heard of a metaphobia. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I joined the practice that I'm with now, it's a special, we're a specialty clinic. So our main focus is OCD, but each mm-hmm. clinician has, you know, some other areas of focus too. And so I received more in-depth training on ERP so that I could really focus on treating people with OCD And then one day a case came my way of somebody who had emetophobia and I said, sure, I'll, I'll take the case. And I was actually, um, my colleague who owns the the practice that I work for told me about your website because he had heard of it somehow. So I went Mm -hmm. to your website and took a look and I was like, Oh, this is interesting. And I learned about what emetophobia was. And so I said, okay, I'll try ERP with this and see what happens. Mm-hmm. A lot of success. And so after that, I just started getting a lot more referrals. And right. most of the people that I see with emetophobia have never found another therapist who treats it. And I mean, the only other therapists I've ever heard of who treat it are you and a couple of my colleagues in the practice that I work for. Wow, really? Yeah, there there are hundreds, maybe thousands that are treating it now. It's just starting, I think, in the last five to 10 years to really kind of come out of the closet. Um, I think perhaps people who have it are getting more bold in, you know, just sort of declaring themselves. And then a lot of people hit it even from um therapist because a lot of therapists brushed it off like oh nobody likes vomiting or something like that it's like wow no it's way worse than that so yeah yeah, well helpful that um I'm glad my website was helpful that's the whole reason I put it up there um and uh I'm just so I'm just now um writing a a book a lot of people know about, uh, which is meant for therapists on re- it, research, diagnosis, and treatment of emetophobia. I'm writing it with a child psychologist. And I'm just, I was just writing the chapter, trying to flesh out the chapter this morning about um, acceptance and commitment therapy. So l- let me ask do you use that with your emetophobic clients, first of all? To be honest, ACT is not something I've received in-depth training about. I've bought some books on it for Mm -hmm. myself, and I'm trying to educate myself more with it. Um, I do know that it does incorporate some mindfulness, and that is something I do Mm -hmm. a lot with people. 
Okay. So why don't you, I don't want to, I've already pushed you on two other things you weren't really trained in. <laughs> I can't, I'm not blaming you for that uh, one bit. It's just that I try not, I'm trying to not talk as much, you know, because I usually I'm like, let me define that for you, you know, so I'm trying not, trying to just ask people. Mindfulness, tell us about that then and how you incorporate that into your work with anxiety in general. Mm-hmm. So mindfulness really is about learning how to be present with whatever is there. And so it's a great tool for helping people develop a tolerance for uncertainty, which really is what underlies all forms of anxiety, including phobias and OCD. Mm -hmm. So my experience, not only can mindfulness help with managing stress and generalized anxiety, but it actually is helpful when doing ERP because Another benefit of mindfulness is that it works on the part of the brain associated with attention. And so physiologically, it does help increase a person's ability to focus their attention, which is important when you're doing an ERP because with ERP, you're trying to stay focused on something specific. Mm -hmm. So it can help prevent the mind from becoming as distracted or help people notice when their mind has wandered so they can return their attention back to the ERP focus. Right. That's interesting. So you actually, you're doing exposure with people and, and their mind can, do you think that their mind, minds just kind of wander off for a variety of reasons, or is it a protective kind of almost instinctual thing to not focus on what's really scary? Yeah, I think it's both. Um, obviously the nature of the human mind is to wander. So that's part of the mindfulness. Mm -hmm. This is just accepting that that is going to happen. It doesn't mean you're bad at mindfulness or you're doing it wrong. It's just going to happen. And during ERPs, I definitely think part of it is kind of the brain's way of saying, you know what, that's scary. I don't really want to look at that. So I'm going to go over here and look at something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I find that clients, um, they, when they're looking at pictures that aren't very specific, for example, they're more likely to say, oh, that person just looks like she's concentrating or that person just looks like they have a, a headache or, or mm-hmm. they're just looking at something on the floor. They're not really bent over because they're about to vomit or, or whatever. So it's almost like, yeah, I, I noticed this protective kind of, I don't know, maybe it's an instinct. Um, it's just our nature to avoid what we're afraid of. Right. And so that's one way of doing it. It's making up a story about, but I think once I draw people's attention to that, then they, they find, then they catch themselves doing it as Mm -hmm. well. So what is it that you do with clients to teach them mindfulness? Well, typically I'll start by just explaining it because I think there are a lot of mindfulness has gained a lot of pop, gained popularity. And so there are a lot of apps and a lot of mm-hmm. podcasts and other things like that. It's very readily available. But I think the one thing the apps don't do is really give people a good solid foundation about what it really means, what it really is. So I like to start with that and just providing some psychoeducation around 
what is mindfulness? What does it mean? What are the benefits? How, how can it help? Mm-hmm. And then if we do that. I will often engage people in mindfulness exercises, mindfulness meditations in sessions. So body scans, mindful breathing, that sort of thing. Um, sometimes I go over specific breathing exercises and then sometimes I will also recommend apps if people, a lot of people prefer to do something guided on their own. Mm-hmm. That can be easier, especially for people who have never experienced or have never adopted a mindfulness practice for themselves. And so I really like the app Insight Timer. That's my favorite one. It's free oh. and has an enormous library. It's called I- Insight Timer? Yep. Like... They even have meditations for kids. Oh, that's fabulous. I was going to ask what you thought were your favorite ones. I've looked at a few. Yeah, there are some very popular ones like Calm and they're Mm -hmm. expensive though. Um, Or you, or you, you, Headspace are both great, but they're not really free. Calm has a couple of free features, but. What was the other one you mentioned? I, I didn't catch it. Headspace. Oh, yes. I've heard of that as well. Yeah. Not also not free. No. Right. Another good free app, which doesn't have quite as many, doesn't have nearly as many meditations on it as Insight Timer, but it's still good, is called UCLA Mindful. Oh, okay. It's out of the Mindfulness Research Center at UCLA. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'll look those up and put a link to the them uh, in the notes of the podcast. So thank you for that. I think that um, for the longest time, I couldn't get anyone to define mindfulness for me. Um, and I knew what meditation was. And I knew what, you know, progressive muscle relaxation was with guided imagery, because I went through that in the 80s. Um, but I, I <laughs> it, it seemed like there were so many, it uh, was just like um, saturated the market, right? All the books and everything about it. So um, in one way, that's good, I think. But in another way, it can be an overwhelming amount of information. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I always give my clients uh, a couple of recordings that I made that I put up on YouTube that are, um, that are progressive muscle relaxation and guided Mm -hmm. imagery. Um, And, but as far as teaching mindfulness, I I still don't really know. I don't know enough about it or, or now did you take some training on it? Were you saying? So I do have some training in mindfulness based cognitive therapy Okay. Um, But even well before that, just on my own, I've been involved in yoga and meditation since Mm -hmm. I was in college. Um, So I, when I was in grad school, actually, I used to go to a group meditation every week and there would be different teachers there. So I I learned a lot of different types of meditation. Yes. Yeah. Practice. And sorry, you cut out there for a second. And I had my, I've had my own meditation practice. Nice, nice. I, um, I've taken some meditation workshops as well. 
Yeah, that's that's really helpful. I came through the Christian ministry. Um, rather, the United Church of Canada is very liberal, I would say. Um, in the United States, might be equivalent to the United Church of Christ. And I became part of an interfaith action society. And we got together when the Dalai Lama came to here to Vancouver. Um, you had to write an essay, a hundred hundred words. Was that all it was? I mean, it was a thousand. No, I think it was a hundred. Anyway, um, so they they chose a bunch of clergy and people to be able to go and meet the Dalai Lama. So I got to go. That was really cool. Wow. Um, but then, yeah, it, it was, and I still have, oh, it's in my other office, but um, he he blessed like a, a silk scarf and gave it to each one of us, which was really awesome. So people that were rabbis and and just people from every religion were there, and everyone was happy to get this scarf. But the cool thing was that we then continued to meet four times a year, all the rest of us, like all of us without the Dalai Lama. And um, yeah, I, I learned things from Buddhists, from Christian mystics um, and Sikhs, like just um, people from the Sufi religion. It, it was very, very helpful. And it was all different kinds of meditation or uh, certain types of prayer where you're not mm -hmm. talking. A listening kind of prayer, yeah. So um, it, the, all of that, I think, is extremely helpful to people who suffer from anxiety. Because as I like to tell people, I don't have a metaphobia anymore, but that doesn't mean I'm not anxious. Mm -hmm. Because I was born an anxious person, and instead of channeling all of it into vomiting, now I'm just... <laughs> I, I'm just, I can freak out about anything, not really freak out, not the way, not have a panic attack or anything, but I can just, ah, uh, my grandson's at the top of the slide and he's going to fall, you know, that kind of thing. So all of that mindfulness practice is extremely helpful. I think mm -hmm. it, it can just keep you at an even keel. One of the things I was just reading some of, of what was written by Michelle Kraske, who's, who's a just such a prominent researcher on anxiety um, in our, uh, as a contemporary of ours. And now it's gone out of my mind. Um, oh, well, <laughs> if I remember it, I'll put it back into this part or I can just take this all out. Sorry. It's been a rather long day. Um, how, how do you, how long do you spend with a metaphobic clients? Can you, on average, is that something you can think of? It's hard to say because it really depends. I mean, there is a lot of variety in terms of how severe it is for people. So obviously the people who have, a, have more severe symptoms, I tend to see a little bit longer. Um, I'd say probably if I had to take a guess, um, maybe five or six months before people really feel comfortable yeah. to kind of take it out on their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. uh, if I had to grab a time, I'd say six months is usually, um, I, I tell people now that I, I have a program, an ERP program that 
run 16 to 20 sessions, but with holidays and this and that, that usually runs about six months. Um, and, and then they, they kind of need to go out into the world and experience mm -hmm. things um, that uh, without using their safety behaviors or without avoiding things they avoided before and keep doing that. Um, yeah. Do you find that you have people that with a metaphobia that relapse and come back to you? You know, I really haven't seen that as often as I do with something like OCD. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think. I I can't think of anyone that I've worked with with a metaphobia who completely terminated treatment and then came back at some mm. point. I've had people who kind of go in and out just because of their schedules and not necessarily because they're done with treatment. Right. But I don't think I've worked with anyone who had significant improvement of symptoms and then had a relapse. Yeah, well, that's good. Um, or you don't know about it. <laughs> I don't know. I, same with me. I was like, yeah, some people contact me. Um, some people contact me, have kind of a refresher session or something. But um, it um, it's probably because you... You see, just talking with you, you just come across as such a caring and warm person. I think that makes a difference. I think it means that your clients trust you, you Thank know, you. Eas easily. And that is huge for um, anyone with anxiety, I think, because even going to therapy is scary. Yeah. It can, and it can be therapy scary. is scary for sure. Exactly. A lot of people think exposure when it comes to metaphobia is vomiting. Like they don't realize that it's a whole bunch of other things. Um, and just the word exposure terrifies a lot of people who have a metaphobia. But there are so many triggers for people's phobias, mainly the things that they control themselves. I, I think, you know, are, uh, correct me, argue with me. I'm happy to have a discussion about it. But I think that the the things they avoid and the safety behaviors they use, those are the biggest things when it comes to exposure in the sense of stopping avoiding them and right. stopping, stopping with the gum and the sipping water and taking Pepto-Bismol and carrying around a plastic bag in your purse. And I, I have a huge long list. Um, and I give people time to, um, I have a little workbook that has three months of blank calendars in the middle of it. And, and I just have people schedule in, okay, when are you going to give up the gum, you know, <laughs> or, or whatever. Do you still do a hierarchy and go, from easiest to most difficult thing when you're doing ERP? Mm -hmm. Sorry? I do, I do that, yeah. And do you create the hierarchy with everybody individually? Yeah, so usually the, the first session is an intake where I'm just getting a history from people, sometimes that last two sessions. But usually the session after that, you know, one or two sessions after that, we do the hierarchy and then I explain what ERP is, how that works. I have a little handout 
that I give people on ERP and we go over that. And usually I'll also do some introductory mindfulness stuff that they can practice on their own separate from the ERP. And then we start ERP. Right. Um, uh, I don't know his first name, Abramowitz. Are you familiar with him? Yes. Yeah, Abramowitz has this huge textbook, Exposure Therapy for Anxiety, second edition out now. Um, but in it, he says that current research shows that it's better not to have a hierarchy, but, but just to have a list. And so you could surprise people. I think Michelle Kraske did research on this as well. Uh, better to just surprise people with something really difficult and then maybe have something not as difficult and they don't know what's coming next. What do you think about that? And I mean, my perspective is only from treating emetophobics, but I don't know if that's something that you have thoughts on. I can definitely see the utility in it. I mean, I think a lot of people... I, I can see how having a hierarchy might lead people to feel maybe even more afraid of tackling some of the higher level stuff and maybe feel like they want to just stick with what's lower on the hierarchy. Hmm. At the same time, I, I also can think of people I've worked with who would have dropped out of treatment if we started with the high stuff first. So yeah. Yeah. I do to both. Uh, I know I have a hard time with it because I used to just pr straight out promise people, I will not surprise you with anything. I'm not going to surprise you by just showing you some video or something that's going to freak you out. And um, so I don't say that anymore because I've always got it in the back of my mind, but I, I kind of go through the hierarchy that I created on my website. Um, and sometimes it does work that way. In fact, I just had a client this past week who looked at one of the videos that most people think is really easy to look at just a, a, a little toddler um, kind of throwing up nothing really. Um, and that really affected her uh, a lot. Let me just say that. I don't want to say anything more about that specific person, but then that's not the only time that has happened. Mm -hmm. um, I had, there's a, a silly little cartoon on my website where there's a dog with his head in a bag, which is meant to be like a sickness bag, I guess. And the owner is standing over and pointing saying, I said, fetch, not wretch. I mean, it's not funny. <laughs> Although you're smiling, that's very polite of you. <laughs> it's not really funny, but it's just a simple thing to kind of start out with. And I have one client who burst into tears with that one. She said the guy looks so mean and, you know, I, so you never know, you know, you just, you don't know. And I don't know whether those particular people fared any better because they got something hard just kind of thrown in near the beginning. I don't know. Um, I think if anyone had said to me when I was going through treatment, you never know what you're going to see. It might surprise you with something really hard and scary. I would not have come back. I, I can tell you right now. I think the element of surprise can be helpful in that in reality, it is always or not always, but usually going to be a surprise if yeah. somebody else throws up or you see yeah. it on the sidewalk or whatever. Right. But at the same time, 
to your point, I definitely can think of people I've worked with who would absolutely have not come back yeah. if that's what we did, did the first day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, once, once I get through, people get through sounds and videos, I do encourage them go on YouTube and, and type in, you know, vomiting or puking or something silly, like, cause it's usually a silly thing on, on YouTube and just see how you do when I can't tell you what you're going to see and there's no explanation and just, you know, so I think at a certain point, People can do that. Uh, I remember when my therapist encouraged me to do that. I was like, oh, I don't know if I can just see something that I, that's a surprise like that. And he said, isn't it just once you've seen one, you've seen them all? <laughs> or something. I know he said, isn't all vomiting the same, just different colors? I was like, I guess it is. You know, when you really think about it, it really is. It's just all the same. Yeah, pretty much. So... I often recommend people watch medical shows like ER or Grey's Anatomy because right. there are many episodes in shows like that that have vomiting and there's no way to know yes. when it's what episode it'll be happening in. That's right. I was just watching that show, The Good Doctor, on Monday, and everybody got food poisoning, um, all the staff. And so a lot of people are vomiting now. I think someone can somebody can email me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you can see anyone's any vomit coming out of anybody's mouth. They're always sticking their head in some some kind of garbage can or 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 something. It it's just meant to be kind of humorous um, because it it turned out that they had a potluck and someone accidentally put magic mushrooms into something anyway. So they were all kind of high and a lot of people were vomiting and stuff like that. So that, that might be a good one for people to check out. I'm sure you can see it. Uh, I'm sure it's streaming now because um, mm -hmm. it, it was a little bit humorous and not, not explicit really, but yeah. Well, Jennifer, I'm just so thrilled that you came to talk to us today and, and that you are doing this work. I, I just, Thank you on behalf of all the emetophobic people out there, everyone who's in Massachusetts, um, who can, you know, now do telehealth with you. Um, and, and just for taking this on, because you do have to kind of look at yucky stuff yourself, you know, yeah. which isn't always nice. Um, I'm so used to it now that I don't even think of that half the time, but yeah, so I, I appreciate it. And, um, before I before I let you go, is is there anything that you as a therapist treating this disorder, any resource that you wish you had that you don't have? That's a great question. To be honest, I find your website very helpful. So thank you for for putting that up. Um, yeah. I guess. I mean, I think there, the one resource I could think of maybe would be, and it may not exist yet, but just access to more research. I don't know how much research yes. is on amenophobia. I think more yes. research needs to be done and, yeah. and on, you know, how to treat it. And certainly to be, it sh I think it should be something that 
more providers are aware of. Right. Both therapists and medical doctors. Like a lot of mm-hmm. clients came to me after talking to their primary care doctor about it who had never never heard of it. And right. it's really hard for people a lot of the time to find help. Yes. So more more awareness for sure. Um, there are uh, only about 50 journal articles, or less than 50, I'd say. There, When we started writing this book about five or six years ago or whatever, there were only about 30-something articles. And there is only one randomized con- controlled study um, that that was done on CBT, you know, um, where half the people were on a wait list and and half the people got CBT for their metaphobia. There are others that are, a lot of others that are case studies of particular forms of therapy. Um, So yeah, we're, we are trying to include a lot of the research in our book. And I just, I am trying to convince my writing partner that we should have an appendix with just lists in chronological order the 47 or whatever journal articles, what, what the study was, you know, Mm -hmm. and when it was, because at least then you can think, Oh, okay. Somebody did something on disgust and emetophobia. I can go look that up or whatever. So yeah, hopefully Um, it'll probably be another year and a half before this book is on the market. (laughs) We do have a publisher, but, and a deadline now, but um We'll see. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And um, bless you for all the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone who's listening and to all of our subscribers and the people that have bought me a coffee lately, even though I haven't been putting out the podcast, but I still have to pay so for the platform. So, But thank you very much. Um, for more information or therapist resources, you can go to my website at emetophobiahelp.org. And I will put other links in the notes that have been mentioned in the podcast. See you next week.